So last time we looked at this uh, principle of biblical interpretation that I hope you still have a copy of. And we didn't quite finish it, so what we're doing today is looking at the finish of this, and then we're going to try it out. We're going to try out these principles on statements of Ellen White that sound very different than what we read in Desire of Ages the, the, the past weeks. Uh, just, to, just to fill in anyone who's listening or anyone here who hasn't been here with us during the past weeks, we read a commentary on the chapter It is Finished in Desire of Ages in which the commentary explained that Ellen White's perception of the law of the uh, death of the wicked of God's principles of governance versus Satan's principles is that God's government is built on the principles of love and truth and freedom and Satan's principles are built on force and we tracked through her chapter those two principles as they work out and the best encapsulation of how they work out is a more descriptive view of law meaning that's God's view and a more legal view of law uh, in terms of Satan's view then we went to the principles of interpretation in preparation for looking at her statements that seem legal in understanding and that's what we're going to do today is look at those or begin to look at those we won't finish today by any means but we'll get the process started so are there any requests for prayer None? Finals. finals finals are coming up the trip's back Starting Monday. and safety for travel yes we won't meet next week or the next week <laughs> but I wish you all a very good th- uh, spring break mm-hmm. let's pray dear God we pray this morning as we look at your character and through different lenses that we may come to understand and appreciate who you are, how you work, and what the language that is so very human sometimes understand, what what the language means. And we pray that you will be with us as we examine statements this morning, that your spirit will give us wisdom and guidance. And I pray for every one of us as we engage in final exams next week, Uh, Give everyone the wisdom, the low stress that they need, the ability to study well and to do well. And bless us as we travel to different destinations that your spirit may guide us and direct us and give us safety. Thank you for all your blessings. Thank you for the Sabbath day. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, uh, let's turn to, unfortunately I did not number this document, but the last page which is number 13. And I'm going to begin by reading number 13 and then we'll pause for reflection. The light of the glory of God must fall upon us. We need the holy unction from on high. However intelligent, however learned a man may be, he is not qualified to teach unless he has a firm hold on the God of Israel. He who is connected with heaven will do the works of Christ. By faith in God, he will have power to move upon humanity. He will seek for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. If divine power does not combine with human effort, I would not give a straw for all that the greatest man could do. The Holy Spirit is wanting in our work. Nothing frightens me more than to see the spirit of variance manifested by our brethren. We are on dangerous ground when we cannot meet together like Christians and courteously examine controverted points. I feel like fleeing from the place lest I receive the mold of those who cannot candidly investigate the doctrines of the Bible, those who cannot impartially examine evidences of a position that differs from theirs are not fit to teach in any department of God's cause. What we need is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Without this, we are no more fitted to go forth to the world than were the disciples after the crucifixion of their Lord. Jesus knew their destitution and told them to tarry in Jerusalem until they should be endowed with power from on high. Every teacher must be a learner that his eyes may be anointed to see the evidences of the advancing truth of God. 
the beams of the sun of righteousness must shine into his own heart if he would impart light to others. That's from the Review and Herald, February 18, 1890. Any comments or questions? Do you think we're capable as a church of, of doing this, impartially examining the evidences of a position that differs from our own? Well, one of the things that I've just noticed is it's, it seems to be easier for smaller groups to do this kind of work because when you start getting into a more bureaucratic uh, type of group, like the, the church has to become in order to manage hundreds of parishioners, uh, you have to start agreeing on what kind of thing you're going to be teaching. As opposed to a small group, everyone can have their own kind of ideas and they can discuss. It, just, it seems like it becomes a lot harder when you have masses to kind of manage rather than talk to. Which is why maybe general conference sessions aren't the best places to discuss theology. <laughs> so then what would, what would your suggestion be? Let's say that, that's, that that is true, that general conference is not the place. Well, how to, how to solve that problem. Um, you know, something interesting is going on right now, and that is that um, there's a committee set by the General Conference of both men and women who are studying the issue of ordination. And the, they had their first meeting in January, and it got pretty heated right away. Because they had some very strong-minded people with very strong convictions that they are right. And, and so here you have this group, this group of about 250 people in a room, and they're at each other's necks already. And so Arturo Stila, who is the, um, he, the, he's the chair, I believe, of this group. He's in the Biblical Research Institute, I believe. In fact, I think he's the head of it. He asked them to pause to pray. And I guess he must have had them... No, maybe he didn't have them kneel, but he had them pause to pray. And after that, they said, a spirit of freedom came in, and they were able to discuss. So, so I, I think that's what she's alluding to here. As long as we're on our little positions of power and we want the last say, and we want to be right, uh, we're not going to get anywhere. It's when we can humble ourselves and, and bow our heads and pray and ask for help that then God can kind of soften us down and, and get us willing to listen to one another and, and be reasonable human beings. Well, and I think another thing that contributes to that kind of heated discussion is perhaps a fear of being wrong. I mean, we are talking about paradigms for life and paradigms that we are teaching people to live for life. Uh, and I can easily imagine the idea of someone confronting me saying, no, what your, what your whole way of life is is wrong and we should not be teaching other people that. I think you have a point. I think it's an unconscious fear, though. I think most people would not admit they were afraid and, and I had a classic example of that one time when I taught overseas uh, somebody who held the position I do had me over for Sabbath dinner and they knew that the pastor of their church which we had gone to that morning did not agree in fact he was very opposed and very concerned about the number of people in his parish who believed the way I do and so this particular friend of mine, and I don't know why he did this, but he thought it would be wonderful to have the pastor come over and have a dialogue with me. And uh, I and his wife said, I don't think that's a good idea. But uh, he prevailed. He said, I've already invited him. So here he came, he and his wife, and we sat in the living room and we began to discuss. And finally, towards the end of our discussion, we, we were very polite to one another, by the way. We kind of pussyfooted around and, and tried very hard not to defend one another. So it was a very amicable discussion. But at, towards the end, he asked me, so what gives you the assurance of salvation? That's a really important ingredient, by the way, of the legal model, is having that assurance of salvation. 
And I said, well, I trust God because of the kind of person he is. I know that whether I'm saved or lost, I can trust him and he will do what is best. And I said, I don't have a fear because I trust him. I said, I'm not afraid of him. And I remember his wife sitting bolt upright on the sofa and saying, I'm not afraid of God. I'm absolutely not afraid of him. And fear was just coming out of every pore. And I thought, wow, I just about pulled the rug out from under her. So I said, you know, if this view that you hold helps you not to be afraid, hang on to it. I didn't feel she was ready to give it up. But uh, it, it gave me a classic example of how we can be afraid and not realize it. Deeply afraid. And I think that's true. When, you know, I, I know in my own life, when I've been the most loud and adamant that I'm right, I'm usually dead wrong. And, and I've, I've noticed when people shout their views the loudest, you can almost hear that hollow ring. It's, it's like, in fact, the, there's a classic story, and I don't know whether this is a true story or just a made-up story, but there's a classic story of some deacon that found the notes of the pastor's sermon. And there were some side notes he had written to himself, and it said, good support, good support, weak support, speak louder. <laughs> so where we have weak support we speak louder one last thing Uh, but I guess the the reason I brought up the whole fear uh, uh, the fear point is that fear only comes from a specific view of how truth works so elaborate yes (laughs) so if I believe that I have to define and therefore defend truth there can be fear that I'm wrong. But if I view that fear is something that is natural and constant and descriptive, why do I have to worry about being wrong? If I'm wrong, it'll come out naturally, right? And if it's God's truth, then why am I so worried about being wrong? Why am I so worried about being wrong? There was a time when I was really afraid that God didn't actually exist. And this is early in my college career, and I finally just had to realize, after talking with a wise man, Jason DeSena, that truth can bear scrutiny and keep pursuing it, you know, and it, it, it's okay. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah. And, and that's, I think, what her, she's trying to, she says that other places, but that's, I think, what she's alluding to as her background, actually, for this, is that we can courteously examine controverted points because truth can bear scrutiny. Mm-hmm. And I, I just see this as, as so very important. Do you want to read the next paragraph? Yeah. The Bible is its own expositor. Scripture is to be compared with Scripture. The student should learn to view the word as a whole and to see the relation of its parts. He should gain a knowledge of its grand central theme, of God's original purpose for the world, of the rise of the great controversy, and of the work of redemption. He should understand the nature of the two principles that are contending for supremacy, and should learn to trace their working through the records of history and prophecy to the great consummation. He should see how this controversy enters into every phase of human experience, how in every act of life he himself reveals the one or the other of the two antagonistic motives, and how, whether he will or not, he is even now deciding upon which side of the controversy he will be found. Okay, any comments or questions about this? This is one of her most central statements. Uh, It's one of the favorites of my mentor, Graham Maxwell. He used it a lot because that's how he did his Bible study. It was holistic. And he tried to relate every part of the Bible to the other and ask the questions that would give us a a larger perspective in the great controversy. So this was one of his favorite statements. I think this is rooted, this statement is rooted on her premise about inspiration, that the language is human. 
and everything that is human, she says, is imperfect. And we read that at the, at the beginning of this document. Uh, and if everything, if, if the language is imperfect, going to a lexicon or a dictionary to find out the meaning of a word is not going to give us the inspired view of what that word means. It's going to give us the human view. And I think as a result, our, our scripture reading has been very human-based uh, and very human-defined. And, and consequently, when we look at words like wrath, for example, uh, we come up with a very human view of wrath because the language is very human. And, and that's why she says the Bible is its own expositor. Scripture is to be compared with scripture. We have to, use the, we have to look for the Bible's own definition of these terms that it uses in order to come up with something that is answerable more to God and, and who he is because he, he does not uh, he does not adequately represented by the human language we have to look beyond it would that argue with the concept of biblical commentaries um, especially ones that were um, written partly by Ellen White. Well, I see we have to we have to do with Ellen White what we do with the Bible. I, I don't see a, a great deal of difference. Partly because she uses biblical language all the time. Uh, her 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 language and and we'll see that when we get to the statements that seem more legal. She's she's basically using the King James Version language of the Bible. So I, I see we have to deal, do the same thing with her as we do with the Bible. The Apostle says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17. The Bible is its own expositor. One passage will prove to be a key that will unlock other passages, and in this way, light will be shed upon the hidden meaning of the word. By comparing a different texts, treating on the same subject, viewing their bearing on every side, the true meaning of the scriptures will be made evident. Any questions or observations, comments? I think here she spells out how the Bible is its own expositor. One passage may prove key to unlock other passages. And in this way, light will be shed upon the hidden meaning of the word. In other words, now we're getting beyond human language, human definition, and we're getting more towards what the Spirit inspired the scriptures for. Uh, and and this, this holistic way of reading the Bible, comparing scripture with scripture, is not something that modern and I use modern deliberately. I'm not using it in postmodern. I think postmodern would be more inclined to it. But modern uh, scholarship disdains that kind of study. Uh, and part of it is because they see the Bible as such a human book that they, they believe in, in scientifically attempting to humanly understand it. But when we do that, and, and I don't care whether you read commentaries by liberal scholars or commentaries by conservative scholars, the picture of God remains the same. And, and it's because everything's rooted in the human understanding of the terms that the Bible uses. Before we move on to the next one, before we do that, I'd like to go back to the principles of interpretation document. And I'd like to highlight the main things because we've read so much it's all kind of mur uh, murky as to what we are to do uh, so I'm going to suggest that you highlight and number one on page one imperfect speech on the top line and then four lines down the Bible and then skipping over perfect as it is in its simplicity does not answer to the great ideas of God. And then the last, next to the last line, and the last line, sinful beings can only bear to look upon a shadow of the brightness of heaven's glory. And we, we need to keep that in mind constantly as we read scripture. We're seeing shadow. And 
I just have to relate this to Moses' experience on Sinai. When he asked to see God's glory, and God says, I'll make all my goodness before you, pass before you, and I'll proclaim my name. But, he said, I will, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will put my hand over you, and as I pass by, you will see only my backside, because no one can see my face and live. Uh, if you understand anything about ancient or eastern gestures, to see the face of the king, for example, was to see his favor. It meant that you were in good favor with him, and that there was no issue. If he turned his head from you, or turned his back on you, it meant wrath. It meant that you probably were going to be executed, or put in prison, or something else. So, when God shows Moses his backside, he's showing him, in ancient and Eastern perception, his wrath. That's all Moses can bear of God's glory, is his wrath. And when he comes off the mountain, his face is shining so brightly he has to put a veil on because the people can't bear to look at him. So once we understand that, when she says that human beings can only bear a shadow of heaven's glory, that's why there's so much wrath in the Bible. That's all we can bear. And uh, that relates too to how God's being angry actually came to be in the ancient Near East, which is a study I intend to do someday. I hope soon, but I keep finding other things to study, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, okay, number two, what I'd like you to underline is the second, no, third sentence. The gospel is the key that unlocks its mysteries. Now, this, she's talking here about the sacrificial system, the temple rites, all of that, but I think this principle applies across the board to the Old Testament. The gospel is the key that unlocks its mysteries. In fact, I didn't include a statement here that she makes over and over that, that the light, in the light that streams from Calvary, I think is the way she puts it in Desire of Ages, the, the things that in the Old Testament seem mysterious and unclear become clear and plain. She advocates studying the Old Testament in light of Jesus' life and death. And I, I, more and more Adventists are coming to that conclu same conclusion that that's how we have to interpret the Old Testament is in light of Christ. Uh, so I, I think that is key. And then in number three, the main uh, thing here I think that helps us is the term on the fourth from the bottom line hidden beneath the surface the next paragraph on number three if you can find in about the middle on the right hand side laying aside his preconceived ideas if you can find that line laying aside his preconceived ideas and then the next line his hereditary prejudices at the door of investigation will gain true knowledge. And then a couple of lines down, compare scripture with scripture. It's in the middle of that line. And then the keys that unlock the treasure house and give him a true understanding of the word of God. You want to turn to the next page? Number four, a scripture is the key that unlocks scripture. Number five, in the middle of the, well, towards the end of the first paragraph, or the second half of the, of the first paragraph, he revealed truths that had been buried under the rubbish of error, and he freed them from the exactions and traditions of men and bade them fast, stand fast forever. He rescued truth from its obscurity and set it in its proper framework that it might shine in its original luster, speaking of Christ. Uh, that whole, you want to mark that whole paragraph. One way to do that, you know, is when you read something, ask yourself, what does it not say that I think it's always said? It's amazing. I have students tell me all the time that God got angry when he sent the flood. I was like, oh really? Where's that in the text? 
it's just there. (laughs) (laughs) Then they go and look it up and, oh, he didn't get angry. He got grieved. How do we get angry out of that? Loud voices. (laughs) Loud voices, yeah. Paragraph 6. The third line. But these priceless gems had been placed in a false setting. And then the next line, God desired them to be removed from their setting of error and replaced in the framework of truth. Okay, number seven. Language of men and the second line at the end of that line. Language of men. And then the next line, everything that is human is imperfect. And then the last line of that paragraph, the Bible was given for practical purposes. One of the things that I have noticed in theological discussion is that we often assume for words more than are there. And we, we put into them something, or we, or we hold them in a, on a level that is not, is not warranted by the text. The Bible is for practical purposes. We have to think practically, I think, as we interpret it. Uh, num- uh, number eight... Uh, that first line at the end, not God's mode of thought and expression. And then the next line, but God has not put himself in words, in logic, and in rhetoric on trial in the Bible. And then the next paragraph, middle, at the, the, the third line in towards the end, but the words receive the impress of the individual mind. Let's turn the page. I think we'll start with number 12 on that page. All whom God has blessed with reasoning powers are to become intellectual Christians. Anybody off the hook on that? And then the next line, or the third line, let the ingenious inquire, the one who would know for himself what is truth, exert his mental powers to search out that truth as it is in Jesus. And then... uh, three lines down towards the end of the line we cannot allow these questions to be settled for us by another's mind or another's judgment and then I don't know how to tell you where to find this but if you look down it's in the last third of the paragraph the Lord positively demands of every Christian an intelligent knowledge of the scripture And then number 14 on the next page. Starting with the first word, the the Bible is its own expositor. Uh, That whole first section down to the nature of the two principles that are contending for supremacy. And then number 15, the last two sentences. So let's try to keep these in mind as we move on now to the forensic terminology. And I'm going to ask you to start in the middle of this document. Okay, we're going to begin with a section titled Atonement on page 6. And Bianca, I'm going to ask you to read that first paragraph. Paragraph 11. But this great sacrifice was not made in order to create in the Father's heart a love for man, not not to make him willing to save. No, no. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, John 3.16. The Father loves us, not because of the great propitiation, but he provided the propitiation because he loves us. Christ was the medium through which he could pour out his infinite love upon a fallen world. God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, 2 Corinthians 5.19. God suffered with his Son. In the agony of Gethsemane, the death of Calvary, and the the heart of infinite love paid the price of our redemption. Jesus said, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. John 10:17. That is, my Father has so loved you, that he even loves me more, for giving my life to redeem you. In becoming your substitute and surety, by surrendering my life, by taking your liabilities, your transgressions, I am endeared to my Father, for by my sacrifice God can be just, and yet the justifier of him who believeth in Jesus. Okay, that's from Steps to Christ, pages 13 and 14. 
What do you do with that? Propitiation. Anybody here know what propitiation means? Substitute? Sacrifice? Uh, it's a little stronger than that. <laughs> look at the context. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> propitiation, if you look it up in a dictionary, this is the human definition now. Propitiation means appeasement, placation, satisfaction. And that's exactly what she's saying it isn't. She's trying to, isn't she? Uh, although, here's, here's the thing you need to know. Uh, the, I would say the keynote writer of the forensic model, John Stott, maintains exactly what she says here, that God propitiated himself. He appeased himself by inflicting on himself in Christ the, death, the, the penalty for sin. So we need, to, we need to get through this carefully. We're not going to solve this paragraph today entirely because I'm doing a current study on her use of the word propitiation and appeasement. And one thing you need to know, and I'll tell you this much, uh, I have a, a CD-ROM of most everything she has written, but not all of the manuscript releases. I have to go online to get those. But I use it because it is so much easier to read than what you get online. Online they have this really weird screen that you can hardly read the words in when it comes up. So anyway, I, I typed in appease God. No, no, no sites for that. No sightings. I typed in propitiate God. No sightings. I typed in propitiation of God. No sightings. She nowhere, as far as I can tell, and I, I need to do this more online to see if, if I can find it there, she nowhere says that God is propitiated by the death of his son. She uses it very differently, and most of the time when she uses it, she uses it as First John uses it in both chapter 2 and chapter 4. So she's actually, in her mind, she's quoting scripture, and that's how she's using it. But notice that she does say in definition, God, and she's quoting here, 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ reconciling the word world unto himself, not reconciling himself unto the world. Now we're going to find another statement I just came across the day before yesterday uh, that sounds like God has to be reconciled. But reconciled is a big, broad word, and it doesn't necessarily mean appeasement. Uh, what do you do about becoming your substitute and surety? What do those terms mean? And, and what principles that we've read can we bring to this that help us understand this? What does it mean that Jesus is our substitute and surety? If, if I were to use Desire of Ages chapter 79 that we just read recently to help me with this I would say that in a sense God could not fully execute the plan of salvation until he made clear that he was telling the truth that sin leads to death because if if he merely forgave us said I'm a God who forgives. You are forgiven. We're not going to talk about the consequences, okay? We'll just suspend the consequences. What happens then to God's orderly universe? Seems rather arbitrary. It's arbitrary. And more than that, the contester of God can claim, it's my world. <laughs> That's the world I thought you had said it was all, the, all along. You're, I'm right. You see. So... In other words, in order for the plan of salvation to be fully executed, sin had to be made clear for what it was, that it leads to death, so that we understood that the way God designed the world 
the laws, the descriptive laws, including the moral law, that defines how order should take place, how righteousness should be, and, and what makes a peaceful and safe and free universe. Those principles are upheld. If those principles aren't upheld, then we have a random world. And, and God can do anything He wants, and, and He can make any laws He wants, and everything's destabilized. We have nothing certain. I could go out and plant onions today and get carrots <laughs> when they come up. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm being facetious, of course, but <laughs> but in the moral arena, it becomes very serious. I can punch my brother in the nose, and there's no repercussions for it. There's no consequences. <laughs> now, how are you going to suspend consequences for that? Well, he has to trust you anyway, even though you busted him in the nose. He has to, he has to just go on as if nothing happened. You know, would that help us in our woundedness? No. This, this is why Jesus had to die. And, and instead of God asking us to demonstrate the consequences of sin, Jesus did it in our place. That's substitution. Does that make sense? I'm not, I'm not sure it does yet, but we'll keep working at this because I haven't ever done this dialogue with anyone in my life. So you'll have to forgive me if I don't articulate it so you understand it. <laughs> It'll take practice. <laughs> but, yes? Why, um, why is that not proven by like other humans dying? That's a good question, and to answer that question, we have to go back to Chapter 79 of Desire of Ages. Um, if you have that document, it's on page 21 of that document, and it's, uh, if you want to write it down, it's Desire of Ages, page 764. Uh, this is after the statement that really is her climax statement, I think, in that chapter where she says that this, meaning the final destruction of the wicked, is not an act of arbitrary power on the part of God. Sinners reap that which they have sown. And she describes it as natural consequences or inevitable results. Then she goes on to say, at the beginning of the great controversy, the angels did not understand this. What, what does this refer back to? Uh, that it was natural consequences, right. Had Satan and his host then been left to reap the full result of their sin, they would have perished. But it would not have been apparent to heavenly beings that this was the inevitable result of sin. Inevitable says it all. It means that there is no way to get around it. This, this is sin leads to death. It is inevitable. And it's, it's the direct and natural consequences of sin. So until, until Jesus died, the, the deaths of, of people on earth you know, weren't proven to be unarbitrary? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So it was still open to debate. It, it was very open to debate. And you think about, if you had been on the world when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, what would you have decided? Mm-hmm. God is doing it. Definitely. And, and this is what happens when you sin. God is going to destroy you with fire. Uh, so that's what she's saying is that only God himself in the person of Jesus could make it clear that this is natural cause and effect. Any other death would not prove that. Satan would still claim, ah, God did that. God's the one who killed them. But when God himself goes through it, the, nobody can say that. That was a good question. So that's, that's how Jesus is our substitute and surety. By surety means someone who stands in your place. It's, it's sort of like what you do when you get a collateral on a loan. You get somebody to sign with you to get a loan. Um, that's, they're, they're being surety for you. If you default on that loan, they have to pick it up. And uh, consequently, if a person is wise, they won't become <laughs> surety for somebody on a loan. But that's what, what Jesus did. He became the surety that, ju- that God's universe was built on cause-effect relationships that were natural, inherent, and inevitable. So that by changing the cause of sin, 
the lies of Satan about God's character, God could win us back to trust. That's the point. If everything is built on cause and effect relationships, then if God changes the cause and shows those lies to be false, he can win us back. And that's, that's part of her theology in Desire of Ages. It's chapter 22 in uh, other places. Only by love is love awakened. Love cannot be commanded or, or won by force or authority. Uh, all of those statements. So that's, that's how that by his sacrifice God can be just and the justifier. In other words, we can have the world working on cause-effect relationships and we can win people back. We can have a both-and. Instead of being caught between a legal construct of justice wanting to demolish sinners because God hates sin so much and he can't stand what they've done and wanting to forgive them at the same time in his mercy and having a war in God's heart between justice and mercy, which is what you have in the legal model. Okay. Do we have time for one more paragraph? <laughs> yeah, let's go for it. Uh, I think it's your turn. Okay. His, or Christ's, object was to reconcile the prerogatives of justice and mercy and let each stand separate in its dignity, yet united. His mercy was not weakness, but a terrible power to punish sin, because it is sin. Yet a power to draw, to, uh, draw, draw to it the love of humanity. Through Christ, justice is enabled to forgive without sacrificing one jot of its exalted holiness. Justice and mercy stood apart, in opposition to each other, separated by a wide gulf, the Lord our Redeemer clothed his divinity in humanity and wrought out in behalf of man a character that was without spot or blemish. He planted his cross midway between heaven and earth and made it the object of an attraction which reached both ways, uh, drawing both justice and mercy across the gulf. Justice moved from its exalted throne and with all the armies of heaven appro approached the cross. There it saw one equal with God bearing the penalty for all injustice and sin. With perfect satisfaction, justice bowed in reverence at the cross, saying, it is enough. <laughs> and it sounds like she's splitting justice and mercy apart now. They were, they were in conflict until Jesus dies. And then there's no conflict. The conflict's been resolved. Is she talking about God there when she says justice? She capitalizes it. Is she talking about the Father? Now in another paragraph, you need to know that I don't have in this document, she talks about the Father coming to the cross and bowing and saying, it is enough. So she uses the same words applying to the Father as she uses for justice. What do we do with this? With, with the idea of like natural law and then arbitrary law, um, at least for me, I saw like right away I don't know if this is where you're going that like showing that the natural law of sin you know will will take God's life mm -hmm. is that enough is, is, does there need to be an arbitrary oh okay so in other words the background you're seeing behind here is Satan's claim mm -hmm. that it, that God's going to be the one to pull the string and, and execute the wicked and all of that and I think that we have to keep that background in mind. Uh, if we're, see, one of the problems we have in the Adventist church, we have moved away from trying to harmonize statements that do not agree. Forgetting that our very belief system as, as a church was built on that harmonization. And we, we've, we have stopped trying to compare scripture with scripture anymore. And so what has happened is we play these games of my statement that I hold to cancels out your statement that you hold to. Okay? And uh, whoever has the most statements that they can hang on to that don't can't cancel it out by other statements wins. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great... Uh, what? There's, a, there's a game that does that kind of thing, isn't there? Most games it's are built on that. Do we have any economics majors in here? 
<laughs> economic majors might help us out uh, in more ways than one. <laughs> the legal model is built on economics. Um, but we have played that game. And what I maintain is we have to take every statement as valid and then attempt to harmonize. So just because it says it a different way than my statement that I have, I have to harmonize those two. Those two are both true. And how we harmonize them is going to be how we get the truth. So I would like to propose to you, just for starters, and we'll probably have to work on this a little bit next week or next time we meet. Uh, I would like to suggest that here she is talking about justice in a broader sense than just the Father. She is talking about justice in terms of the discussion that goes on in the universe, throughout the onlooking universe, over whether Satan is right or whether God is right. Is Satan's system of legal, uh, legal law, is that the true way? Or is God's way cause-effect? Which way is God's way? Is it a legal way where God executes the wicked? Or is it... a descriptive way in which this is the way things have to work in a free and loyal universe. Well, yeah, one of the things I was noting was that starting from the sentence justice moved, mm -hmm. in the next sentence she refers to justice as an it, not an he. Yes, and, and to me that's a major clue. More than that, it moves with the armies of heaven. It is, it is the angels and the unlucky universe who say, yes, we get it. It's clear. This is what, this is your whole, the whole thing is mapped out now. We see that sin causes death. It's not you. And consequently, justice says it's enough. It's, it's, it's satisfied things because it's demonstrated the truth. It's demonstrated adequate evidence for the whole universe to agree on and to believe. So justice here, to me, is, is, includes the whole agreement process that God engages with. And if you, if you look at Job and, and the way God handles the Satan, it seems very clear to me that the way God runs the universe is open court. No one is denied access. That means that when we pray, we have tremendous power, more than we realize it's an open court and what we say about our neighbor and what we pray about our neighbor watch out you better be careful what you pray because it may happen that, that it will actually we actually can affect the course of history by our praying and I, I don't think we realize how much we play a role in this and, and angels play a role in this uh, sons of God play a role in this the daughters of God whoever whoever is representing all those planets out there is playing a role in this. Uh, so that's one thing to, to nail down. But I would like to put, look at the first paragraph. His mercy was not weakness, but a terrible power to punish sin because it is sin. How does mercy punish sin? How is it a terrible power to punish sin? yet a power to draw to it the love of humanity. Does, is it two-faced? Is mercy two-faced? What, what is she saying here? Well, I would like to point out that she refers at more than one place. And, and in, the, in the Desire of Ages 764, she talks about the rejectors of his mercy reap that which they have sown. She refers to the wicked as those who reject the mercy of God. Now, when you reject mercy, what does that make you become? Cruel? Sadistic? If, you, if a person becomes devoid of mercy, they're at least harsh and hard and maybe even implacable. And... What has God done in mercy to the world? I'm going to read you 
to me this statement really helps it's in great controversy on the chapter of the destruction of Jerusalem and you can see how much I've marked it up <laughs> I just was like yes 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 <laughs> anyway <laughs> we cannot know how much we owe to Christ she says for the peace and protection which we enjoy it is the restraining power of God mercy is a power right it is the restraining power of God that prevents mankind from passing fully under the control of Satan the disobedient and unthankful have great reason for gratitude to God's mercy and long suffering in holding in check the cruel malignant power of the evil one but when men pass the limits of divine forbearance, is this arbitrary? That restraint is removed. Then she says, God does not stand toward the sinner as the executioner of the sentence against their transgression. He doesn't do the executing. But he leaves the rejectors of his mercy to themselves to reap that which they have sown. Now what happens when you dam something up for a long period of time as it gets worse and worse and worse and finally the day comes when you can no longer hold that down what happens it's all the more terrible so his mercy is a terrible power to punish because he restrains that evil and in his restraining it it builds and builds and builds so that when he finally has to let it go it's terrible does that make sense? Hmm. That's, that's how I interpret this that, that to me is, is the reason why it's a terrible power to punish sin and see this is, this is our, our problem as human beings we tend to see that word and we bring to it all of the stuff that we've been taught all our lives about God punishing people you know? and we tend to read that automatically into it but when you read this statement into it, it come, becomes quite different. So that same power that restrains evil, thus making it get worse and worse and worse behind the scenes, is the same power to draw it. It's, it's restraining it, trying to draw it to itself. And, and as a person resists the love of God and says, no, 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 they become harder and harder and more difficult and and the whole thing becomes worse. That ties it back into your idea of letting it come to fruition Yes. by the end so that people can see what it leads to. Right. Right. Do you want to continue? <laughs> okay, let's go on. Um, so she says, through Christ, justice is enabled to forgive without sacrificing one jot of his exalted holiness. What is his exalted holiness? In the forensic model, holiness is God's hatred of sin. But I want to remind you of two places in Isaiah where it says, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains. And then, and there's a place in um, Hosea 11 where God talks about His holiness as not destructive, not angry. God's holiness is His purity, and His purity is love, is it not? I mean, if the law is the law of love, and sin is the transgression of the law of love, then sin is anti-love. And thus God's holiness is his love. So, through Christ, justice is enabled to forgive without sacrificing one jot of his exalted holiness. His holiness is love. He doesn't have to sacrifice that because he has shown that anything apart from love is death. It leads to death. So he has exalted love. Love and truth are the way in which the universe is to be run. I know this is a little steep and I'm, I'm probably bypassing a lot of little baby steps in between <laughs> to get there. Um, and maybe it'll become clearer as we move and, and work through some more statements. 
uh, how this actually works. Justice and mercy stood apart in opposition to each other, separated by a wide gulf. Can we not interpret that in light of desire of ages to mean that Satan is the one who separated them? Mm. He's the one who claimed they were in conflict. And, and keep in mind, the whole point of Jesus coming to earth and coming to die was to disprove the claims of Satan. And it, it, we've got to keep that in mind or nothing will make sense. So the Lord, our Redeemer, closed his divinity with humanity and wrought out in behalf of man a character that was without spot or blemish. He showed that love and truth are the way to righteousness. Remember how I pointed out that in that Desire of Ages paragraph that Satan tried to force Jesus to use force? You know, for, forcing someone is trying to get them to use counterforce. The most natural thing in our sinful human natures when someone tries to force us is to resist and force. We tend, we tend naturally to want, gravitate towards force. Satan tried everything in his power to get Jesus to submit to his way of force. That was the contest. And the contest about Jesus' obedience and remaining obedient was to remain trusting and in truth and love, not in force. And, and I, I, made the, I made the suggestion that in our attempts to overcome sin, we tend to use all the wrong methods. We, use what, we try to force ourselves to obey. We try to use willpower. If I just hold the line a little longer, you know, we do that kind of thing. And we fail every time because force is the way of Satan. It only perpetuates the problem. It only exacerbates the problem. It does not solve the problem. What solves the problem is that we have a deficit of love. We haven't been loved enough. And if we were loved enough, all our addictive behaviors would vanish. I, I, I will make the exception that sometimes we're wired to addiction by genetics, and I, I real recognize that. <laughs> but, but I'm talking about the common uh, fallout that we experience. So he planted his cross midway between heaven and earth, made it the object of attraction which reached both ways, drawing both justice and mercy across the gulf. What does that mean? <laughs> Jesus said, I, if I be lifted up, will draw all to me. And there's, it's not all men. Okay? Men is not in the Greek. <laughs> it's all, the whole universe. Will not the whole universe finally kneel and say, Just and true are your ways, O thou King of Saints? So it seems that he is by the cross, by establishing that sin leads to death, and that God's way is love and truth, and that by the truth he can draw people who were not resisting that truth to himself. Mm. Let's, let's back up and put it another way. <clears throat> it might make it clearer. Which is more just? Say, say you, you have a person who at the end of the millennium he has been a child molester and he has ruined countless lives through molesting young children. <clears throat> Which is more just? to torture him as he tortured others as long as he deserves or to allow what he did to himself in the process of torturing others to work itself out and destroy him which is more just yeah. well, the second is more natural than the first okay the second is more natural than the first but we can't see that that we like as humans we can't we can't, we can't see, see how that. that would happen <laughs> yeah we can't we have a hard time seeing that here and I I think that's why before anyone suffers that final death Jesus or, or God revisits the whole plan of salvation and we actually see in panorama the death of Jesus we see him in Gethsemane we see him on the cross we see what happens we see what the universe saw and and we see it with a whole lot of additional information from that we don't have right now. 
But which, if, if you can wrap your mind around it, which is more just? I can tell you which is more cruel. But it's just as cruel. And if it is, what separates it from the crime it's punishing? Exactly. What makes God, who then tortures the child molester as long as he deserves for every time he molested a child, what separates God from that child molester? I'm not going to try to answer this question totally today. I, I think we need to work through some more stuff before we get to it. But um, I want to drop to the last line. With perfect satisfaction, justice bowed in reverence at the cross, saying, it is enough. Now, this is satisfaction. This is the way Ellen White sees satisfaction. She sees God as satisfied that everything is clear. It isn't that his wrath is appeased. I think I've had enough for about three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> you can think about this all during spring break. <laughs> it is meaty. It is very meaty. And I, I think what we'll come away with is a sharper and clearer perception of this whole thing and what we want to see from it. Okay, let's have closing prayer. Father, we thank you that you have given us minds that can reason, that can harmonize, that can work through perplexities and, and speech that is metaphoric, symbolic, and arrive at understanding. We ask that you will continue to bless us in the days ahead with clear perceptions of truth and what it means for us in our lives. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.